You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff and having fun while we learn. Of course, you can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com and of course I will answer as many as I can. It's a double Torah portion this week, so I have double what to talk about. But it's okay. We're just going to split it up. I found some some really, I just think some really good stuff. It's always timely. Torah is always timely. And uh, let's let's just dive right in. Right in. We're not going to discuss the freezing cold weather. Even I spoke to my son and the temperature is like double or triple what it is over here. So we will not go there. Where we will go is into this week's Torah portion. And I want to talk about a fascinating um, command, if, we can, if we're going to call it a command. And that is, we call it in Hebrew, it's called v'chai bohem. That means you have to live with Torah. V'chai bohem, you will live with Torah, you will live with commands. And let's, we're going to talk about the juxtaposition and where things uh, stand. And let's, let's take it from the beginning. So it happens to be, this week's Torah portion is achremos, which uh, literally means after the death, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, they died bringing a fire into the Holy of Holies. They weren't allowed, at least one of the problems. And this week's Torah portion tells us how the high priest, in this case Aaron, can enter the Holy of Holies. And the bottom line is he can enter once a year on the holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur. And there's a process. There's sacrifices and fires and and spices, is a whole process of what he has to do, rules and regulations to be allowed to enter the Holy of Holies on this holiest day of the year. He'll end up going in a total of, um, I'm going to say four times. Um, I believe that's correct. And in and out, and that's really it. He can pray for a few seconds if he wants, but in and out, that's it. Debatable if he could do it any other time of the year. But again, just to give us the focus, to get that, and you know, it's to go in to the area where God allows his presence to be shown the most, to be on that level of purity, of holiness. You, there's a preparation, and you go in and out. And, of course, only the high priest. It is interesting. It's, uh, it was actually, for those that do a page a day, what's called the dafyomi. We've talked about that in the past. If you do the dafyomi, so you do one double-sided page a day of the Talmud. So actually this week, um, this concept of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies came up. And it is interesting the difference between the first temple and the second temple. The, the wording in the Talmud itself says there were 18 high priests during the time of the first temple. Now, what's interesting is there's actually an argument amongst um, different commentaries that lived, uh, some of them may have lived in the 1300s, some of them may have lived in the 16 or 1700s. They're not convinced the word should be 18. One wants it to be eight. One wants it to be 10, because it's really coming from a verse 
there's a verse in what's called Divayamim that seems to count who the high priests were in the first temple, and there's only like eight or ten. So why 18? They give different answers, but whatever it's going to be, 8, 12, 10, 18, you're talking about over a 410-year period, perhaps even over a 700-year period, according to the 18 one. You had the job of high priest. So to, let's, again, let's draw the picture. So who is the high priest? So you have your regular priests, your Kohanim, and they work. And when a new priest is needed, you're going to look for the greatest rabbi, the greatest scholar, the greatest scholar among scholars and righteous amongst the righteous. You're going to choose the man who belongs there, right? Somebody who can represent who is that spiritual leader. It was understood who that should be. He's not going to be 20 years old, probably. Could be. Could be in his 30s. But the likelihood is it would be somebody who's older. That would be the, the, that would seem to make the most sense. So take somebody older. How many years can he last already? And on average, even if we use the number 18 over 410 year period, so we're talking 21, 22 years on average. Some will be longer, some will be less. But again, you get the picture that the person put into this leadership role for spirituality is going to hold on to the job for a while, and he has to be a very holy person, a very special person, because he's going into the Holy of Holies once a year, or one day a year, a couple times on that one day. Now, let's take a step back, and the Talmud says, that was in the first temple. What happened in the second temple? In the second temple, it says there were over 300 high priests. Now, three, over 300, and the second temple was 420 years, so now we're talking one a year. Okay, you have an extra 100 years there, so some people made it two years. The only problem with that is that we know there were four high priests. One of them lasted 70 years, one of them lasted 40 years, and then another one was 10, another was 12. So right there, we wiped out another 130, 140 years. So you have under 300 years, for over 300 high priests. So somebody is a little confused over here. In other words, if the high priest was not somebody who deserved to go in to the Holy of Holies, he was going to die. Whether he died on the spot when he went in, whether he died sometime during the year, whatever you want to say, he, they didn't last long. It actually says in the in the prayers on uh, by the Musa prayer of Yom Kippur, we actually talk about in the prayers how the high priest, when he went home after Yom Kippur, he made a party for his friends and family that he got out alive. So it was a big deal. But I want to look at it a little bit different, and we're going to get back to that, that verse of living with the Torah. We're going to get back to that. But I want us to think about this. First of all, how did it happen? Like, what was the difference? Why weren't, I mean, they, they couldn't find anybody. There was no big rabbis in the Second Temple. I mean, we talk about in the Mishnah, we have great people. Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir and Hillel, the great Hillel. Okay, these were not priests, right? They were not from the priestly family. Fine. There were so many great people. There must have been people that were not going to drop dead because they didn't belong in the Holy of Holies. So what happened was in the Second Temple period, the Jewish people, yes, we had permission to come back and build the temple. That's the story first with uh, Mordechai and Esther, and then we get to, 
to Esther's son, who gives permission to go back, and Ezra brings the Jewish people back, and they don't all come. But really, we were not in control of the land of Israel. First, you had the Greeks you had to worry about. After the Greeks, the Romans took over. So yes, we ran it a little bit, but overall, we were not. The Jewish people were not in control. There were already other nations that were in full control of the land of Israel. They sort of let us live there. I'm sure if we paid taxes, we were fine. I think we talked about a couple weeks ago that Hillel himself was like a semi-king. He was set up because they were allowed to have a spiritual leadership and they could have rabbis and stuff. But but politically, to be king politically, you were paying for it. It was costing you. And a a position like the high priest was also going to cost you. So people basically were going to pay millions of dollars to get this spiritual position of being the high priest. That's what happened in the Second Temple, certainly the last two-thirds or three-quarters of the Second Temple. So I, I think about this all the time. I told it to my class. So what happens? You found out uh, the Roman government said or the Greek government said, oh, you want to be high priest? No problem. The bidding is open. So you bid, you bid, you bid. Yeah, 50,000, 100,000, million, whatever the number is. Not so important, the number. So you paid a million dollars. So you become the high priest. You're the wrong person. You are not fitting to be the high priest. So the first Yom Kippur comes. You go to the Holy of Holies. Edie dropped dead in the Holy of Holies. And they have to pull you out. Or you die during the year. Okay. Guys, last one died. We're ready for the next one. Next contestant. He pays a million dollars. He dies. Third year. He pays a million dollars. He dies. Four, five, ten, twenty. At what point do you realize that you are paying a million dollars so that you can drop dead in the next six months or a year, give or take? Like twenty-five. How many people does it take for you to figure out that I am spending a million dollars to go into the Holy of Holies so that I can die? Does it take twenty-five people to figure it out? Does it take 50 people to figure it out? 100? 200? Like, at what point does everybody figure out, you are not living if you take this job? Are they all so foolish to think that, well, I'm better than the last 200? Like, what exactly were they all thinking? So I've seen this, and and, and it, 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 it makes sense to me. There are people out there that if they had the ability, like if I asked you, if we redrew the picture, and I said, you know, you live a religious life, you're a spiritual person, but, you know, you can only reach to a certain level of spirituality. You can only get so far. I can take you to the top of the mountain. I can get you. You can touch God. You can feel God's presence more than anyone else in the world. You're right there with God. You can say whatever you want to God. You will be right there. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. First of all, you're going to have to pay me for it. <laughs> I'll pay any money in the world to to, you know, to get more spirituality. I, I crave, my soul craves spirituality. Of course I'll do it. Okay, there's one other problem. Most people can't handle it. I mean, you might be the exception, but the likelihood is experience has shown that no human can really handle it, so you'll probably die. And look, the last 50 guys I took to the top all died. But, you know, you're in or you're out. 
So now that we're drawing the picture that way, there's a lot of people out there. They have all this money. Right? They have nothing to do with it. The, what can they do with their money? Buy a little more pleasure? I could get the greatest spiritual feeling that's possible. I'm willing to pay for it. What else should I do with my money? So that's what was going on. That all these people paying, they knew they were going to die, but they felt it was worth those millions of dollars to reach that pinnacle of spirituality even if they were going to die. Great. Sounds fantastic. And that will take us full circle back to those words we talked about, which are later in this week's Torah portion, and I believe that's why they're there. And that is, the Torah says, V'chai bahem. The Torah wants you to live when you do mitzvos. When you follow God's command, the goal is to live, not to die. So simply stated, the first thing is, if if you're going to have to die to get to this level of spirituality, the Torah doesn't want you to do that. The Torah wants you to live. Spirituality, when your soul separates from the body, when you die, you go up to heaven, you have all the spirituality you want. In this world, we are a combination body and spirit, soul and body, and the body cannot handle certain levels of spirituality, can't handle it, so that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live with the Torah and not die. Now, there's really more to it than that, and we use it in the most part, or for the most part, we use this verse to tell us that, for example, the Torah says you have to keep Sabbath. What if there's a medical emergency? A lady's giving birth, so you have to get to the hospital. But it's the Sabbath. How could I, how could I go ahead, call the doctor, take a car ride, turn on the car? How can I profane? How can I do this stuff that's forbidden on the Sabbath if uh, just because uh, there's a medical emergency here? So you all might say, well, crazy, of course you have to. You're only allowed to go ahead and and profane the Sabbath to because of a medical emergency because the Torah says you're allowed. Now, of course, the Torah says you're allowed because that's what God wants. But we need this verse that says you will live with the Torah, you won't die with the Torah, to tell you that you can go ahead and you could, you could not keep the Sabbath this time, so you'll be alive to keep more Sabbaths. Another example. You have a person uh, that, uh, let's say a lady gave birth a day or two before Yom Kippur. She has to eat. Three days after giving birth is very dangerous. A lady shouldn't uh, eat after she gives birth. But she wants to fast on Yom Kippur. We tell you you're not allowed to fast. You're not allowed to fast because you need to live. And this could be very dangerous to your health. The same would be, for example, if, uh, if somebody needed to take a certain medicine and the medicine was made with pig fat. You're not allowed to eat pig fat, but you have to live. So if the only way to live is to take this medicine, you're allowed to do so. So overall, there, is, there are very few, we're going to talk about them momentarily, There are very few things that supersede life. Life is most important. The Torah values life. It values life at the beginnings of of a person's life, and by the way, it values life at the end of a person's life. Even if we know the person is terminal, the person is dying, but we will do anything to keep a person alive, even for a small amount of time, because Torah 
values life first. However, with that being said, now I have to re-clarify. There's three categories that you, you have to be willing to give up your life to serve God. Three categories. Um, category number one, I, we call the big three. So let's not confuse the two numbers. There's three categories. And now I'm going to talk about category number one. Category number one says that there are three commands that if you are asked your life or this command, you have to give up your life. The first one is easy. The first one is to kill somebody else. If a gangster comes to you and says, you kill that guy or we're going to kill you, I know gangsters say, well, what do you, what do you want? It was my life or his life. What should I do? Like, so the Torah says no. The Torah says you cannot kill someone if the choice is your life or his life, it's your life. The commentator, the, the Talmud actually says, who says your blood is redder than his? Now, so that becomes debatable sometimes. Maybe you have a, an important leader and you have a person who's not so important, but it doesn't matter. The Talmud says... You don't get to decide whose blood is redder. God decides, and since he's not telling me whose blood is redder, so if it's my life or your life, I cannot take away your life to spare mine. I have to let myself get killed. Number two of the big three. So the number one of the big three is murder. Number two of the big three is idol worship. In other words, and this has happened throughout the Jewish people's history, not as much anymore, but uh, you go back to Europe, the Crusades, Throughout the Crusades, as those romantic crusader armies would march through Europe and take detours to go to Jewish areas, they felt it was a religious war. So on this religious war, if there's any Jews in the way, we give them an option. Either you accept Christianity or we will kill you. And most of the time, most people could withstand the pressure. And they said, kill me. And they killed them. Right? So that's something that's happened throughout the Jewish people's history where they were given a choice of idol worship or their life, and they were willing to give up their life, and that's called dying to sanctify God's name. And that's, you're on the top. Okay? You, you, the person dies straight to heaven, straight to a special place. That's number two of the big three. The third one is an interesting one. The third one is what we call... Um, illicit relationships. The easiest one is a married lady. If a man is told, or a lady, by the way, it would be the same thing. If a man is told that you're going to sleep with that married lady or I'm going to kill you, you have to let yourself get killed. It doesn't have to be a married lady. It could be any other forbidden relationship that the terrorist says you're not allowed to do. If they say, do this deed or we're going to kill you, you have to let yourself get killed. So those are the big three. Then comes the second category. Category number two is if it's public. If a Jew is asked to commit a sin publicly, even a small sin, then again, he has to be willing to give up his life. That's category number two. And category number three may be from the, again, throughout history, one of the more common ones. There were times during the Jewish people's history where the whatever nation they happened to be hanging out in was uh, on a, when he's over crusade again, they wanted to convert them. 
Islam, Christianity. It's, it's, it happened over and over again. And there was a lot of pressure. Spain went through it, and a lot of Jews did not. They couldn't withstand that pressure. So if it's a time where the nations are trying to force the Jewish people to change religion, again, in that case, even if they ask you to change the color of your shoelace, because it seems in the time of the Talmud there was a Jewish color for a shoelace, and there was the non-Jewish. It's funny, I think the Jewish color was white and the non-Jewish was black. Nowadays we're all black, but okay, fine. Um, again, that's an example where the Torah says you have to be willing to give your life. Um, a good example was, was really in Russia, going back, I don't know, 80, 90 years ago, um, where they were forcing the Jews to, to stop their religion. And basically they were going to kill you if you stayed religious, but uh, really they should have stayed religious, they should have fought it, um, but they were unable to. But that's, that's a story for another day. Okay, that is... Explanation number one, uh, or one plus, because we already said living is like those high priests. You're supposed to live, not die, to, for more holiness. And when the Torah wants you to live, so if that means if it's a choice of your life or, or not keeping one of the mitzvos, so, so it, again, except for these three categories we mentioned, yet you, you can Push aside that mitzvah for the time being to get healthy or whatever it is so that you can keep the Torah in the future. There is a beautiful Arachayim that I saw. He says like this. He says, when the Torah says you will live with them, it's an attitude. The attitude is that I got to live. When I'm doing Torah, when I'm doing mitzvahs, I am not a robot. It is not by rote. I am not I am not giving God an attitude. I am enjoying the opportunity to serve God. I enjoy doing mitzvos. I am happy when I get to study Torah. I love sitting in my sukkah. I sit there by the Seder and I'm eating my matzah and I'm talking about what's happening. I, this is this this is life. This is called living. Um, it says uh, it says elsewhere it says the only person who's free is somebody who keeps the Torah. <clears throat> Why is it that the only person who's free is somebody who keeps the Torah? Because you're in control. You have the ability to fight your evil inclination. The evil inclination says, don't keep the Torah, don't keep the mitzvahs, don't be good. So if I fight my evil inclination, I'm the one in control. When I'm the one in control, that's living. If I'm just a puppet, if I do whatever you tell me, so I'm, I'm not living. I'm not in control. I'm the puppet. That's not life. Life means I am in control of every situation. And hopefully when I'm in control of every situation, I will choose to do what's right. That's, that is the choosing life. That's when the Torah says you will live with them. You won't die with them. You will live with the Torah commands, you will enjoy life. That is what life is all about. So the second concept of living with the Torah means live, means be alive, be a live person. And there happens to be a third explanation. The third explanation is that the living has nothing to do with this world. You're going you're gonna to do the commands in this world so that you'll be able to live in the next world. Okay, I have, probably not long, but at least I could start it. Um, we try at the end of each program, we're in the Svira period, where we talk about it's our 48 days 
preparing for the receiving of the Torah. So we try to talk about, there's that Mishnah we keep talking about, there's 48 ways to acquire Torah, and I am not going to get to them because my music is now playing, maybe in the next show. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed it, short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to our wonderful sponsored listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to our production team. We have David, Kelsey, and Jalen in the back. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Toro on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.